As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi there. And a special co-host this week, John Hill. Glad to be here. John is our senior banking reporter, and I um, have a very important question that's not related to banking, but key on the Pro Se podcast. Do you watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? (laughs) Is neither an option. (laughs) It is, but Alex and I are about to be quite disappointed because we always check in at the start of a new season to see if any attorneys show up on that show. They are regular contestants. That's right. Um, So yeah, John, thanks for playing along. Appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) You're off to a rousing start, uh, but you're clearly portraying yourself as much more high-minded than Amber and myself. So uh, We uh, need the grounding, frankly. Yeah, yeah. You're on good footing there. Uh, Look, I watch Drag Race. I I don't... It's just just not Bachelorette. I don't have time for that. All right. Well, yeah, Mm. there's only so much bandwidth for... for, Reality competition. Shows. I would like to report, though, um, Alex. I don't know if you watched the premiere of the season of The Bachelorette. Not an attorney in sight. I know. I saw that. I didn't. Um, I was I, very disappointed. I honestly grappled with whether even whether to even mention it. Um, uh, I was actually talking to our um, uh, one of our California reporters, Haley Knoth, about this. Um, she's a big Bachelor franchise fan, and we realized that um, it doesn't really matter. Now, I've I have always made a point to flag the attorneys who go on The sure. Bachelor and Bachelorette. It's been like so. I'm it's the, the blame lies with me, but really, like, as soon as you get on this show, your your profession just becomes person who has been on TV. I agree with that, but I do love watching what the professions are. This season features a pizzapreneur, yeah. There's all there's always kind there's always those there's like always weird, this. like made up jobs. Um, anyway, very disappointing to see them uh not going back to the legal well. Uh, for this season. I think we have, a, we have a good show uh, that includes you guys talking about what some people used to consider made-up currency. That's right. Uh, John and I had a really interesting talk with our senior uh, fintech reporter, uh, Elise Hansen, and actually the segment is about how it's um, not quite so made-up anymore. There was... Nope, it's on the market. There was the establishment of a fund, right? What, what did we talk to Elise about? Yeah, a Bitcoin-linked exchange-traded fund. Now, yes. Say it with me, Bitcoin-linked <laughs> exchange-traded fund. Uh, it's the first of its kind, and uh, Elise had some details on all the legal issues surrounding it. It was a good chat. Yes, uh, very good segment. Stick around for that one. But we do have some news to get to first. And I wanted to begin with an update to a story that we did just a couple of weeks ago. It is the um, saga that surrounds uh, Endo Pharmaceuticals and it's uh, more importantly, it's lawyers at Arnold and Porter who have been accused of basically some discovery shenanigans in opioid litigation all around the country, uh, what we're talking about uh, this week is specifically the uh, case they were involved in in New York. There was a report that came out last week that basically rebuked the attorneys for um, this discovery misconduct, um, but did stop short of um, some harsher sanctions that New York was pushing for. So it's an interesting development. You helpfully put into our script that that was episode 217 when we first talked about it in case anybody wants to catch up. (laughs) Uh, But for the people that are not going to backtrack, if they missed that episode, what's the recap for us? It's quite a good episode, and I would encourage everyone to both listen to that and read the extensive coverage 
um, from our own Jeff Overly and Cara Salvatore. They've uh, been all over this. It's um, quite an interesting story. So basically what you need to know is that Arnold and Porter is representing uh, Endo Pharmaceuticals in a series of trials and disputes um, about the company's role in perpetuating the opioid uh, epidemic. So the, those claims are basically follow the same shape as like any other opioid claim. They say that they, they sold this opioid drug and they sort of downplayed its addictive effects and all of that. Um, but this one took an interesting turn because uh, basically attorneys on the other side began to accuse Endo and more importantly, its attorneys of uh, willfully hiding crucial documents in the discovery process and also making false statements to the court about it. Um, this began to pop up um, in a pretty, pretty like not very closely watched case in Tennessee in April, where um, the the uh, court entered a default judgment against Endo, um, basically for these discovery shortcomings. And that began that sort of was like a canary in a coal mine. It sent up alarms to other courts where the company was litigating, and that included in New York, um, which pushed for a similar default judgment. Endo ended, ended up settling the New York case for about fifty million dollars. But uh, sort of legal watchers and legal ethics watchers were not uh, were still had a close eye on this because the lawyers are not yet off the hook. Um, so even with this settlement, the New York Attorney General's office had pushed for the Arnold and Porter attorneys to be disqualified um, and face like professional and financial sanctions for doing this. Um, and the judge uh, that was hearing the New York case had commissioned this report on how he should handle this like pretty un unprecedented discovery misconduct. Uh, and we got the results of that review this week. Mm, what did that say? Yes. Um, so the thing to know is that it was prepared. It, it wasn't just some random commission. This was headed up by the former, uh, former New York appeals court justice, uh, Joseph Maltese. Uh, and he said that um, he, he basically affirmed the allegations that the allegations were basically true. Arnold and Porter submitted these damaging documents uh, sort of into this massive multi-district opioid litigation that was going on in Ohio, but did so amid like reams of like thousands of other documents and didn't submit it to the New York uh, attorneys specifically. Now, those documents included notes that featured endo sales representatives um, uh, call, uh, talking about promoting these narcotic painkillers at a doctor's office frequented by, quote, a lot of drug abusers and crackheads. That's pretty big stuff to have confirmed by this report. And just to slip in. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, 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 and that was the thing. I was like, New York prosecutors the, the, uh, technically had access to this MDL docket, but the judge said, look, you can't just like slip this in through reams of documentation and not tell them specifically. You should have been, that you, you should have had more candor in your filings with the court. And then that's, and that's what he said. Now, as to the question of a remedy, though, um, uh, Judge Maltese called. For, he he took a little bit of a lighter touch. The state had pushed, like I said, for the for the Arnold and Porter attorneys to either be disqualified or face financial sanction. Uh, all that the all that Judge Maltese recommended was for um, Nassau and Suffolk counties in New York to recover the attorney fees that were that were incurred by this sort of discovery runaround that happened. He also said it was, quote, in the court's discretion to award monetary sanctions, but didn't quite call for them to do so. He kind of he kind of left it to the trial court and I put it out there. Yeah, he said, like, you would be within your rights to do this. Didn't explicitly call for it, though. 
Um, and so that's where we're at. We stopped short of like the most severe professional sanctions, but say like, hey, you got to fork over some money for 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 what happened here. Well, if you didn't specifically call for the sanctions and just sort of softly suggested, where does that leave things? Well, the first thing I want to emphasize is that this is just a recommendation to the trial judge. It still lies with the trial court to decide how and whether he will punish the Arnold and Porter attorneys. There's also another firm called Redgrave, which is a discovery boutique. They got caught up in this as well. And he's not bound by this uh, commission's report. But Jeff's reporting said that like most people imagine that Judge Maltese's insights carry a lot of weight and that it, they will be given some serious um, consideration by the court. So, you know, if you're taking big picture lessons away, he's clearly saying these Arnold and Porter lawyers like really messed up and should not have done the stuff that they did. But it, in his mind, it doesn't really rise to the level of disqualification or uh, anything more severe than uh, a monetary penalty, whether it's attorney's fees or a professional a monetary sanction. Um, this is also the first time we've actually had some kind of legal authority weigh in on the severity of the Arnold and Porter misconduct, as it's been alleged. And this is because this popped up in the Tennessee case to begin with, it's filtered around to all these other states where the company is litigating. And there are various inquiries into discovery misconduct. They're at several stages and it's sort of confusing and overlapping. But this is if if we take this to be the first statement of how severe it is, you know, we've reached something of a middle ground. Now, again, no other court is bound by this, just like this court isn't. Um, but as a sort of matter of first statement, that's that's what we can say here, which is that it's a huge mistake, but not quite disqualifying. Throws down a marker that other courts could follow, you know. Yeah, definitely. For a second story today, I also want to talk about something that's um, the first thing that's happened in what could be some pretty sprawling litigation. Mm -hmm. Late last week, the Justice Department criminally indicted one of Boeing's former chief technical pilots. They alleged that he duped federal safety regulators during their review of the 737 MAX jet. You guys probably all remember that jet. It's the one that was involved in a couple of really terrible plane crashes. In 2018, there was a Lion Air flight that crashed into the Java Sea. It killed 189 people. In 2019, there was an Ethiopian Airlines flight that crashed and killed 157 people. So. Those terrible crashes led to the grounding of those giant jets for about 18 months. There were a bunch of investigations, and it revealed that there were missteps in a few ways, one in the plane's development, but also in how the Federal Aviation Administration was overseeing these planes. Yeah, when we were pulling the show together, I, I said, you know, we don't, um, we probably haven't focused on product liability cases enough here because they're uh, greatly important, but when the product in question is a, a, a huge passenger jet, it has a way of grabbing the attention. So let, let's get into it a little bit more. Um, what's the story with these indictments? Yeah, so this indictment was against a man named Mark Fortner. It's the first one related to these 737 disasters. Attorneys told our own Linda Chim when she was writing about this that it probably won't be the last indictment as the DOJ is looking harder at prosecuting individuals who undermine public safety in this way. Mm -hmm. So here's what happened. The way federal regulators review new planes is that if there's a modification on an original design, the review is less stringent. And 737 planes have actually existed since the 60s. There's right. been many iterations over the years. So the FAA, in those instances, companies basically say what's different between the new jet and its predecessor. They determine those key differences and the minimum level of training pilots need to safely operate the new version. Yeah, rather than building a whole new type of jet if you upgrade a, a prior right. version, it's 
a somewhat like less rigorous process. Streamlined, right? yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the 737 MAX has this unique feature. I'm going to get a little wonky here, but it's sort of interesting to understand what exactly happened. It's called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, and it impacts the jet's flight controls. Accident investigators have figured out that that MCAS system was vulnerable to some faulty sensors, and it could actually inadvertently trigger the system and push the plane into a nosedive. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a couple credits shy of my aeronautics degree, but you don't want to be nosediving. Yeah, when you hear the word nosedive, you know things are not great. Yeah, so, faulty sensor, that's also, also a problem. Bad. Yeah, good, yeah. Good, good point. So according to this indictment, Forkner knew all the way back in 2016 that the 737 MAX system could essentially, uh, the quote he used in some text messages and emails was run rampant um, in simulated test flights and cause this problem. And as I just said, he said this in text and emails to colleagues. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he's on the record saying this on the record saying this. So he withheld that information, though, from the FAA's aircraft evaluation group that looks into these things and says whether or not they're safe and how much pilots have to be trained. Forkner knew that if that group had the full picture of everything that was going on that could trigger the system, then pilots would be required to undergo a ton of additional training before the jets could actually put, be put into service. Mm-hmm. That would cost Boeing tens of millions of dollars. It would set back delivery schedules. It would cause a lot of headaches for his his corporate um, leaders. So he didn't tell anybody. Really not good to soft pedal something that's going to make your plane nosedive into the sea. It's not great. No, it's it's really bad. That's dynamite analysis from you. I don't mean to be glib about it. That's, but yes. that's why they, I'm this why I'm the senior banking we're, reporter. We're, yeah. we're, we're, yes, you are the senior banking reporter. Yes. Banking, not aeronautics. Yes. Again. Yeah. So I think we all agree this is very bad. Yeah. Um, experts told Law360 this indictment, in fact, sends a strong signal about how individuals can be held accountable. Because often what we've seen in product liability issues, especially in the transportation space, mm-hmm. is that a company will be on the hook for something, but not a lot of individual indictments. And we may see a tide turning here. Okay. So some watchers think it's really unlikely that Forkner acted alone because there are these emails and text messages that he sent. Yeah, somebody had to receive them. They they could have told somebody, presumably, if it was was in fact true. So even if he was the one that made some of these decisions, it's likely that other people at Boeing at the very least knew about it. Mm -hmm. So some have speculated, and again, this is just a little speculation. It's only an indictment. We're early stages here. Mm But some have speculated the DOJ might be targeting him as a low totem pole guy to get him to cooperate and perhaps flip on some higher level people at Boeing. So it's something to watch. Yeah. Boeing as a company has already been on the hook for these disasters. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that they were on, there was some corporate liability there, but I didn't know. Yeah, there's some pretty big figures here. They reached a $2.5 billion settlement Mm -hmm. earlier this year that ended a DOJ criminal conspiracy investigation. It focused on some of their potentially misleading statements and two former Boeing employees, one of them Forkner himself, had made to the FAA. So okay. that's what that centered on. Okay. So he's come up in this before. Yeah, he's a key guy. Um, so what's he saying about, about this latest development? He has actually already had his first court appearance. It was um, this past Friday. He pled not guilty. Mm-hmm. And it, this was to fraud charges, just to be clear. You're right. mm-hmm. um, and he was released pending trial. His attorney has come out. And made this statement, this tragedy deserves a search for the truth, not a search for a scapegoat. So that's alluding to how there may be higher ups at Boeing that had more skin in the game here, more decision making power than Forkner himself. So I think we're going to see potentially a lot more to come in this story.
As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. Cryptocurrency logged another milestone in its march toward the mainstream with the launch on Tuesday of the U.S.'s first ever exchange-traded fund linked to Bitcoin. It's the first of multiple Bitcoin ETFs that are expected to debut in the coming weeks, and it's going to open up the world of cryptocurrency investing to basically anyone with a plain old brokerage account. But what does it mean if now even your parents can easily bet on the favorite currency of ransomware hackers? And how are regulators working to make digital money safe for the masses? Here to help us break it down is Law360's senior fintech reporter, Elise Hansen. Welcome. Hi, thanks very much. I'm going to be trying to punch my weight here. I got the banking reporter and the fintech reporter, <laughs> uh, I, but Elise wrote some really good stories on this. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Let's get right into it. So maybe begin by telling us what is an ETF and what makes this one so special? Yeah, so an ETF, an exchange traded fund, is a fund that trades on an exchange. Uh, the fund has a Where'd theme. Where they come up with that name? That's, that's wild. Yes. <laughs> uh, who would have thought? Yes. Okay. Um, so the fund has a theme that it invests in. That could be oil futures. It could be Chinese tech companies. And then you, as an investor, can buy shares in the fund. Mm -hmm. um, so you have exposure to whatever it is that the fund is invested in. Okay. Uh, so this particular fund from ProShares, called its Bitcoin Strategy ETF, uh, is focused on Bitcoin futures. Okay. Uh, without getting too much into the details, that basically means that you can have investment exposure to the price of Bitcoin without owning Bitcoin yourself. Okay, so you're like speculating on the, the future of the currency itself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and which is quite a thing to speculate on. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I know. I mean, if, if you read the news at all, it's quite volatile. <laughs> Um, and uh, is has its sort of prongs in a lot of different areas, um, as John said, and as, as John wrote in his uh, in his uh, doc here for us, and you kind of mentioned it even in your answer to the first question. There are ETFs that track all kinds of stuff, you know, commodity futures, uh, the space industry, other things like that. You know, stories about crypto have been in the news for a long time. Um, why did it take so long for a for a crypto, a a a Bitcoin ETF to hit the market? A Bitcoin is over a decade old at this point. Yeah. So the SEC has been extremely skeptical about approving an ETF that just holds Bitcoin. Okay. Um, they've repeatedly said that they're concerned about uh, manipulation or susceptibility to fraud. This one, because it's focused on futures, um, those are pretty clearly under the jurisdiction of the CFTC. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a fund that trades on the New York Stock Exchange and you know has all the checks that you have to go through. So I think the fact that it's it's more tightly under the view of regulators as opposed to Bitcoin, which you can buy from all kinds of places, yes. some of which are, are maybe more um, tightly regulated than others. Uh, this this one, you know, sort of checks a lot of boxes that maybe helps regulators feel a little better about it. Probably also harder to manipulate futures contracts for Bitcoin than actually buying, you know, large quantities of the currency itself and you know, trying to resell it or pump the price. Who knows? But <laughs> um, yeah, I think Gary Gensler recently said in in some statements publicly that that he would be more inclined to to look favorably on Bitcoin futures as opposed to just pure pure play Bitcoin. Okay, so like in the sort of big picture crypto space, I mean, does the if uh, and as John said, this there's this ETF that we're talking about today, this fund, and then there might be others in the pipeline. 
do the arrival of sort of uh, of funds like this does that mean that regulators are kind of somewhat embracing bitcoin and crypto i mean i know this is a long march it's been around for a decade as john said uh do we have a like a big picture sense of like their like regulators general attitude toward that yeah, that's a great question. There's definitely still a lot of interest around negative uses of cryptocurrency as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so crypto has grown massively in prominence this year. And we're seeing investors and you know even institutional investors look at it in a much more positive light and a mm-hmm. huge uptick in adoption. Um, but along with that comes a lot of scrutiny of some of the negative aspects uh, of how the cryptocurrency can be used. Uh, there's you know uses in ransomware money laundering. So we're still seeing regulators look really closely at those things as well. Uh, the DOJ recently launched a new crypto enforcement team that's mm-hmm. going to focus on money laundering. And the Treasury recently blacklisted a crypto exchange for the first time okay. as part of its sanctions regime. For sanctions, yeah. Yeah. So I think the stage is getting bigger. <laughs> yeah. So so there's more positive attention on Bitcoin and other digital assets, but there's also a lot of a stronger spotlight on on how it can go wrong. This this is something that is positive perhaps for Bitcoin and maybe some of the more established cryptocurrencies, but not some of the, you know, more wild west reaches, you know, the, the uh what is it? Uh Dogecoin? Something like that. You know? uh, yes, I mean, <laughs> you're not, you're not yeah. getting futures on that yet. You're not getting, not getting uh, Coinye West. There are like, uh, I, I, I know there are several other crypto like currencies that, that float around with various various levels of, of, of seriousness. But yeah, Coinye West. That's amazing. I hadn't actually heard that. Oh one. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there are a couple of countries. Canada, for example, has approved an ETF that holds Ethereum, which is the second biggest cryptocurrency. Right. But uh, yeah, Dogecoin is probably not on the menu for for the SEC just yet. <laughs> Do you have a sense then of like, um, I know there's been like a long march of, you know, of just like kind of a skepticism of like this, of digital currency just generally and whether it's like a real thing that people should use. Um, you know, taking all these, we're, we've talked about a number of factors, whether it's the establishment of this ETF and this new enforcement unit. Um, what would you say is the state of that kind of tug of war between the sort of the the, the skeptics and the supporters. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of supporters have been really thrilled to see just how much the market has grown. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they would consider that a win. Um, if you're thinking about a tug of war game, I would say it's it's that the game is now in the big leagues. Yeah. So we still have to see where the game lands up. Professional um, tug of war. Yeah, yeah, right. We're still seeing a lot of back and forth, um, but the stakes are a lot higher than they used to be. So it'll be interesting to see where it lands. So investors certainly seem to like this fund. I think in the first day, it had like a really big billion-dollar trading volume. I think the you know, share price went up, so it, it you know, seems to be popular. Um, you know, how do you get some of these further-reaching cryptocurrencies to this point? You know, what, what's the, what is the broader benefit to the crypto market from this? I think one of the things that a lot of folks are really excited about is this is kind of bringing together the crypto financial world with the traditional financial world. Yeah. Um, this is a way to get ex- some exposure to Bitcoin without figuring out how to get a digital wallet and registering on a cryptocurrency exchange and setting up new accounts. You can use your regular brokerage account. You Mm -hmm. can have all your investments on the same screen um, and still be dabbling in Bitcoin in this way. So I think this marriage, uh, this convergence of the crypto world and the traditional finance is what has a lot of people really excited about this development. Uh, There's a a 
fascinating area of the law and of regulation. Um, and uh, I encourage everyone to check out Elisa's story, um, various stories uh, on this point. And uh, Elise Hansen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. show is something offbeat and i know we've already talked about opioids today but there's something else we've got to discuss i mean anytime you can mine the opioid crisis for some light podcast fodder uh let's let's just do it well take grain of salt i guess listeners because obviously the opioid crisis is terrible of course but what i really want to focus on is Companies have got to stop making those internal sales videos. Yeah. They're a mess, and they often get drug out in litigation. They are not ever as funny as the people and companies think they are. Yeah, no, I mean, this. if the things that we're talking about here are true, I mean, the, the subject of mockery is, of course, the people who, who make this stuff. Um, but yeah, what are, we, uh, what are we talking about here? So it's Teva Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. They're defending themselves in several pieces of opioid litigation, and it's the exact claims we always have in these. They are allegedly they improperly marketed these very addictive drugs yep. and and knew that they shouldn't do that and violated a bunch of rules about it. So they have been scrambling over the past couple of weeks uh, to stop jurors in a New York opioid trial from viewing internal videos that parody some really well-known movies and turned those movies into essentially commercials for narcotic painkillers. uh okay what uh what is like i mean if 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 they're if they're scrambling so quickly to try and keep this out of the court record or keep it out of the or or or, or keep it from entering into the legal record what is on these videos (laughs) i mean i i love a good movie parody but context is everything people you need to really think about when you're making these references people watched, and why. People watched a few Oscars back in the day with Billy Crystal, like, plugging himself into movies. And oh, they sure. think they can do it at every corporate meeting. Okay. Um, the company actually says these movie parody clips are so incendiary, it could single-handedly destroy their entire defense. I'm I'm reminded of another great legal movie, Liar Liar, when he objects to the presentation <laughs> of the audio sex tape and the judge asks him to say why. And he says, because it's devastating to my case. That's what this sounds like. Um, Alex... I actually think they just could have taken that scene, (laughs) submitted it to the court, and that's their argument. Okay. So to be a little more clear about what these videos are, um, they're under seal. So I want to make it perfectly clear we are making fun of the concept of this. We haven't actually seen them, but we've heard about them from filings and some other attorneys on the case. They um, made a few spoofs, one of Glengarry Glenn Ross. They also made one of Austin Powers. And uh, the one I was most excited to know exists, they spoofed the legal movie A Few Good Men. Uh, <laughs> can, can I ask about so Austin Powers? Do we know, is it International Man of Mystery or Goldmember? Because I think that's pretty relevant here. I love that you <laughs> asked that question. I have a few more details about Austin Powers, but I don't know from which movie it drives. But it involves Dr. Evil, as you would guess. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, he's, he's the best character in the movie. Now, wait a minute. Can we clear Like, so these were... These are just internal mark, like is this like B two B marketing materials or it's, something? It's my general understanding that yeah, these were internal like companies of this of any large sides tend to have big sales and marketing meetings. Yeah, yeah. They get people pumped up about the new products, that kind of stuff, what they're doing. And I think this was some of that kind of material, but not meant for external consumption. Um, 
very much not meant for yeah, that. Yeah, well, and that's pretty <laughs> telling, I think, because it's like, you might think it's like in somewhat bad taste to be like, do the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross say it? It takes brass balls to sell opioids and like put it on TV. Or Always something. be dosing. Yes, right. I mean, that would be bad. You should not. Uh, that that would be an extremely poor taste. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about the Austin Powers one. So, like I said, we haven't seen these, but apparently it involved dialogue dubbed into an Austin Powers movie during a scene where you're in Dr. Evil's lair and there's a bunch of additional villains sitting around yes. and we got a description of this from one of the um, plaintiff side attorneys who has seen it and they say they're sitting around a conference table um, each person that's parroting in this video plays another member of the Salesforce hierarchy as henchmen essentially of Dr. Evil other evil characters and the guy at the far end says something about oh we shouldn't be allowed to do that that's inappropriate and they're referring to marketing opioids <laughs> this is not like this isn't great you're you're intentionally casting yourself as the villain in a spoof spy movie yeah and talking about how evil your tactics are yeah um and that's exactly why these are so incendiary guys uh jerry's going to see that and be like wait you you made that on purpose it's yourself? Like, it's like so you, the pharmaceutical executive, are Doctor Evil, <laughs> right? That's what you're saying. Yeah, yes. and so I know this all sounds a little silly, and of course I brought it up because it's movie parodies. How could I yeah, not? Yeah, this yeah. catnip for me to talk about. But the New York Attorney General has said that these really do need to to be admitted and seen by juries because they quote go to the heart of this case. And the argument there is that they show how Teva and its subsidiary uh, Cephalon, they actually show how they approach their legal duty to conscientiously market controlled substances. Yes. And if the argument is they were doing bad things and they made a video where their evil people end up spoofing in a movie, mm-hmm. kind of goes to state of mind about what they were up to. I think that's fair. Yeah, it seems like yeah. at, at best it's like, oh, we it's a joke. You know, you treat it flippantly and you know, not yeah, something right. they should be very yeah. serious about. Even if you're not like, oh, we're you know the evil villains, it's still just not something you want to be doing when this is the allegation against right. you. Right. I think yeah. that's a really good point. I think they would make the argument this was a lighthearted sure. sales marketing yeah. thing. It wasn't meant to be too cavalier. It was just meant to like rev up their sales force or whatever. But again, it does show what you said, John. It shows a very flippant attitude about a really severe problem and a, an important thing that they should have been taking seriously. Uh, now, this sounds somewhat familiar. I don't think this is the first time uh, it didn't involve this company, uh, Teva, but there were we, we had another segment about some like internal videos relating to opioids that saw the light of day and were somewhat incriminating, right? I feel like this is now a sub-segment on yeah, right. Per Se. I, yeah. I think we could talk about this pretty regularly because... Man, do people make bad internal videos? Yeah, opioid opioid executives so, shooting themselves in the foot. Definitely, yeah. and they are all opioid related. The ones that we talked about. So, yeah. in addition to these, I will say also Teva is um, they had another internal sales meeting, and this video we have seen. We actually have a clip of it. Yes, um, Jeff Overly reported on this. It's it's on our Law Three Sixty website. Um, but there's a clip of them at a launch meeting in Las Vegas when they switched over from one type of opioid um, product to a different one. Mm-hmm. And as they were retiring that old one, they had a funeral for it, oh. which poor taste right off the bat, right? But they take it so far at this meeting that they had a mock funeral saw, for the yeah. previous product. And the funeral featured a bunch of props and like an elaborate stage show about it. It had a casket. There were bagpipers playing. They had people pretending to be mourners and like 
you know, fake crying. It was a real. So it wasn't like a, a movie parody like these other ones. This yeah. was this was a sketch basically they were doing. This was yes, this was very community theater style. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's weird. Like like so like, it was excellent. In other words, <laughs> yeah, that like sounds real, really. Yeah, weird. like Amber said, this is on the website. You should check it out. It is like a dark glimpse into humanity. I don't even really know how to describe it. Um, it it, it uh, yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's quite a. Scene. And some some jurors have. Um, allegedly already seen that one. We don't know okay. for sure, but we've heard from an a, a anonymous source that got in touch with us that said that that one has been seen by jurors already. Mm. But you're right, Alex. We've talked about this before in Pro Se. We went back to our archives, February 2019, episode 91. We had a long chat about the Insys Therapeutics executive. Yeah, that was the racketeering trial, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. And there was a very strange video they put together that was a rap parody Yes, where um, one of the executives who was on trial and later convicted, um, he was convicted of bribing doctors to prescribe opioids. He dressed up as an anthropomorphic bottle of fentanyl spray. Yes, I remember and this. Oh, uh, yeah, this. Around mm-hmm. and this was a big, yeah, yeah, this, this, this made the rounds. If you saw this a few years ago, you just don't forget it. It was very strange. All of these are super weird. Yeah. Um, it, Similar to some of the arguments that have made in this current one that we've been talking about with the movie parodies, after those convictions, the uh, several different incest executives that were convicted argued that that rapping video was improperly prejudicial and tried to um, make some post-verdict motions because about it. Because it's devastating to my case. <laughs> well, none of that has worked. Those convictions have stood. Yep. So um, you can see why they would be battling about the movie parodies right up front. Mm-hmm. And we may see the battles continue if they do get let in. This, I mean... Listen, as someone who makes a lot of movie references, perhaps some of them ill-advised in lots of different walks of life, you have to just, you can't just throw this stuff around willy-nilly. You have to consider the context, and maybe the context of selling highly addictive drugs is not such a not such an occasion for it. Or true, in a permanent we'll recorded medium that can be, you know, well, released in a court then. filing. Yes. Uh, so, I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen here. I don't want to, like, prejudge the case. We'll see. We'll see what happens or if it even makes it into the record. But uh, quite a story. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Elise Hansen, and our contributing reporters, Linda Chim and Jeff Overly. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, go on over and leave us a written review. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.